Um, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in together. Jesus, we love you. We need your help to, uh, to set the course of our lives. And I pray that at a time like today, at a moment like this, you would do great work in us. Jesus, uh, so often you said, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. I just pray that today you would give us ears to hear. That there would be such a readiness in us to receive what you have for us, that we would be open, humble, and willing to hear your voice speak into our lives. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, every once in a while, when we're going through a book of the Bible, we're in 1 Corinthians now, we've been there for a few months, we sort of run into one of these stretches that reminds us uh, that the Bible was not written exactly as many of us read it. Uh, We have 66 books compiled. This was written over a couple thousand years by many different authors. Uh, And and even the format that it was written in, mine has chapters and verses in it. Yours probably does too. Um, those, that's not the nature of how these authors wrote. When Paul wrote this, it was a letter to a specific church in a city called Corinth. And he wrote to people that he knew personally. He had planted this church and built relationships with many of these people. And they had asked him some questions and he was responding And we have this, what's basically private correspondence that the Holy Spirit authored alongside Paul. And and this is what we believe about the scriptures, is that they're not written by human hands, but that the Holy Spirit authored the scriptures. That when we read the Bible, it's it's more than simply uh, good ideas for maybe how to live your life if you're looking for something. But this is the word of God given to us to shape us, to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us. It's given to us specifically for the purpose of setting our course towards life in Jesus. And so you have this dynamic relationship, a human author that wrote a letter to people that he knows, yet the Holy Spirit inspired it and has preserved it for all people for all time to understand its nature as something beyond just a letter full of good ideas. And so we have this, and, and as you start to see this, you realize that, okay, chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, in our minds, those are like period, stop, next idea, period, stop, next idea, period, stop, next idea. That's not how Paul wrote these letters. This was him giving insight into his ideas of what needs to sh- take shape in their lives. The reason I bring this up is Paul's into a theme now. Chapter 8 through chapter 13, and even a little bit beyond that, Paul's into a theme trying to help this Corinthian church understand the idea of maturity in Christ. When you think about maturity, uh, there are a couple of texts in the scriptures that give us an idea of how the Bible uh, correlates maturing faith with even the physical life, the, the way that we grow as human beings. There are Bibles that talk about, or sections in the Bible that talk about us being spiritual infants, like needing milk to drink, that there's this sense of uh, the very early days of understanding the gospel and letting it set into our lives. And how we grow to um, maturity, Paul even has a, a stated destination of what he's trying to accomplish in the lives of all believers in Ephesians chapter 4, which we'll read in just a second. But that idea is that we're designed to grow. Just like a human being, 
Uh, if you hit peak maturity at 22 years old, uh, when you're 45 and still acting like a 22-year-old, there's something kind of wrong there. You, like, you need to keep growing. And we continue to grow and develop. And we become people that, that start to learn the nature of wisdom and humanity, even into our 60s and 70s. We look back on our 20s, 30s, and 40s and think, man, I knew nothing and there's this sense of as we go, just we continue to grow and develop and understand. And Paul applies that spiritually and gives us this sense of trajectory. And nobody's a finished product. That we're all growing to maturity. And Paul's efforts with the Corinthians are to help them see really that there's much more maturing that needs to take place in their lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, it'll be up here on the screen. You don't need to turn there, but there's a there's a passage where Paul gives essentially his objective for every church and every follower of Jesus. He says this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. Now, uh, who are the saints? Yeah, we are. Good. It's every follower of Jesus. So if you grew up in a Catholic context and you think of a saint as somebody that's like an above and beyond Christian, that's not uh, the biblical understanding of saints. That's not what Paul's referencing here. When Jesus' death applies to you, you're called holy and blameless. That's where that word saint comes from, is the word holy. So anybody that Jesus died for is considered a saint according to the scriptures. So the job of the church, the, the gifts of the church, are to equip the saints all followers of Jesus, for the work of ministry to go out and to carry the name of Jesus. He continues. He says, For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Anybody arrived at that yet? No. So we all have distance to go still. There's maturing that is left. And then he kind of gives the contrast. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul's definition of maturity is somebody that can, that can handle the ideas of the world, that, that the things that come flying at us don't rattle our faith. There's a sense of, of foundation in us that now, we know the truth of the gospel, even as the world tries to point us a different direction. We understand who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul's vision for maturity in the church is that every follower of Jesus would look increasingly like Jesus over the course of their lives. The Corinthians had started to grow in their knowledge, and Paul had to address that knowledge was not the pinnacle of Christian maturity. That the more they knew, the danger of knowledge without understanding love and maturing beyond knowledge is that it starts to become arrogant and can actually do serious damage to the church. So back in chapter 8, Paul starts teaching uh, the, the Corinthians. They had gotten really excited about their knowledge. As they come to faith in Jesus, we know that those idols that we grew up with, it's a pagan city, they grew up with pagan idols. We know that those pagan idols are empty. Yahweh, Jesus, the one true God, supersedes all other idols. We know this, so therefore, 
any meat that's been sacrificed to those idols is available to us to barbecue because the reality is those idols are empty and therefore the meat is just the butcher shop. The, uh, the, the, the pagan temple is just the butcher shop. And so as they started to teach this and live this way, there were people who were genuinely um, affected by this and had the potential to go back into their pagan lifestyle. And Paul's writing in, and he's saying this. He's like, look, you guys are getting it. Theologically, you're getting it. You have been set free. When Jesus comes into our lives, he releases us from bondage to sin, and he releases us from bondage to the law. We are no longer bound by the law of God, the Torah that was given to Israel. Paul is very clear with the Corinthians. You got it. You are not bound by that anymore. You have been set free. The challenge now is what do you do with that freedom? What is it that your freedom has, what is it that's been created for you in that freedom? There's a writer named N.T. Wright comments on this passage and he says this about Christian freedom that's been won for us specifically with this passage he says his overall point is to make them see that Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like but freedom from all the things that stop you being the person God really wants you to be which is freedom for the service of God and the gospel Paul is calling on this church to understand that real maturity is not living out your freedom Real maturity is learning to lay down your freedom so that other people can be built up in Christ. And so the the Corinthians had sort of hit a wall in their maturing process. They got to a place, we'll call it roughly 39, where you think you know everything. And basically, Paul's writing into the 39-year-old church and saying, actually, there's, there's a ton more that you don't even know that you don't know yet. You have a long way to go, and the next phase of your development is learning how to love, learning how to take all that knowledge, and yes, you have all that knowledge, but now how do you live in love to build up the body of Christ? So that is all the context, which brings us now to Paul sharing his own journey of growing in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to read verses 19 through 27. Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body 
and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul starts from this perspective with this huge statement at the very beginning. He says, for though I am free from all, we've established the theological reality that Christ has set us free. You're not bound by anything. You have total freedom. And that is important for you to understand. That's part of your maturing process. It's part of my maturing process that as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we receive this identity that Jesus, in his finished work on the cross, did all that needed to be done so that every single one of us that puts our faith in Jesus understands that now there's nothing more that I can do to earn more salvation from Jesus. There's nothing that I can do to earn more love from Jesus that it is fully finished and fully complete in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. Done. Finished. That today, if for whatever reason everything were to just wrap up today and your physical life was over, if you have given your life in faith to Jesus, you would stand before the living God and according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Every single one of you that's a follower of Jesus, when you stand before the living God, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your brokenness. He sees Christ in you. That is the the vista that God has towards each one of you. And there's power in that. There's freedom in that. There's joy in that. You can walk through life right now saying, I am a child of God. And today, if I were to stand before him, there's no further burning off of my sins. There's no further development or discipleship that needs to take place. Done, finished, from infancy to adulthood in the spiritual spectrum, you are holy and blameless before the living God. That is how complete the finished work of Jesus is. So now, the question is, if that's true, why is it that when you say yes to Jesus, you are not instantly sucked up into heaven and this life is done? Why is it that today, if you could stand before the living God and he would call you holy and blameless, what is the point of continuing on in this physical life Why would we stay here? What is our purpose? What are we here for? As Paul even said, he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He called it gain. When he dies, he sees that as a great thing. I get to go and be in the presence of the Lord. I get to be washed in his presence every moment of every day. I would be overwhelmed by the fullness of Christ in me and me in his presence. It's beautiful. Can't wait. To die is gain. So what's the point? For us, we've been given this sense of Jesus has a purpose for us still being here. In spite of the difficulties of this life, the pains that many of us experience, the relational fracturing that happens, the, uh, the suffocating debt that many of us experience, the, the difficulty physically that we run into, 
Over and over and over, we find ourselves hitting the, the walls of human existence and feeling that sense of, Lord, why do you have me here? What is it that I am here for? And it boils down to this reality. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So Jesus has declared a strategy for reaching the world. And it's not that once a year Jesus is going to show up, say, hey, everybody, I am the creator of the universe. I'm here. I'm good. Follow me. I'll see you next year. And he makes that an annual pilgrimage to just reveal himself to humanity. And we're all like, okay. There are some of you that were thinking, Jesus, that would be very helpful if you would just show up once a year and remind me that you are real and you are good and I should follow you. But Jesus has declared that the exclusive way that he wants to make his presence known is through each and every one of us. He wants to infuse this world with the light of salvation by sending you and me, his people, out into a dark and broken and hurting world with grace and peace and kindness and goodness. That's it. That is the exclusive path that God has chosen to make his presence known is through the body of Christ. And Paul gets it. He's like, I understand why I'm here. For me to, to live is Christ. That is the only reason that I'm still here. To die is gain. That's going to be a beautiful thing. He says, though I am free from all, I'm not bound to anybody, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win some. Does Jesus make us a slave as we come to faith in him? The answer to that is no. And, and Paul would say, no. Jesus didn't make me a slave. But when I understood my purpose, that I'm here for the, the purpose of leading people to Jesus, I made myself a slave. Okay, what do I need to do? Jesus, what do you want to do through me, with me, in the world around me? How can I help make your purpose a reality in this world? If that's the only reason that I'm still here as your child, if that's what you've left me here to do, I am yours. I want all of it. He's going to say later, so that I can share in their blessings, I want to experience the joy and the power of more people finding their way back to you. If this is why I'm still here, I want all of the experience of being here. I want it all. So he says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now he gets a little practical with how he approaches this. He says this, four groups. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Those categories are very similar, to be a Jew and one under the law, but being under the law would expand to include any God-fearing Gentiles or any um, converts from, uh, into Judaism that were Gentiles. So it's, again, it's kind of a broader category. So Jews, those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. And to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. So Paul is getting very controversial here when he says, to the Jews I became a Jew. Can anybody tell me why that would be controversial? Because Paul is a Jew. So he makes a really weird statement. 
to the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews, is for Paul to basically say, look, I know and you know that Christ has set me free from being a Jew. That's not my, that's not my identity anymore. It's not wrong for Paul to say that he's Jewish. He does many times. He talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day, how he was trained up under Gamaliel. He was brought up as a Pharisee. He was absolutely a Jew to the nth degree. He loved his Jewish story, but he talks about it in a way that Christ has set him free from that as being his identity marker. And so now he actually re-enters Judaism in order to win the Jews. Now, what does that mean? Paul is approaching this through a certain lens of saying, I didn't want to put unnecessary obstacles in the way of somebody coming to faith in Jesus. So uh, for a Jew, there is a life, a certain way to live that goes with being a Jew. It's, it's written out in the Torah. It's like your food laws and the different uh, cleanliness laws. There are certain things that need to be done to, to carry that out. And so Paul, having been set free from his Judaism is not going to walk into a synagogue carrying a ham sandwich. That's not kosher and doesn't belong in a synagogue. He's not going to walk into a synagogue carrying a ham sandwich and say, guys, I'm free. You want to hear about Jesus? Because the people that are in there are not going to be able to see past the fact that a Jew is violating the law in their place of worship. That would not even, they wouldn't even be able to hear a word that he's going to say. So for Paul, he realizes, okay, if if I'm going to go and minister to Jewish people, I can't be on the front foot with, hey, everybody, check out all the freedom that Christ gave. You don't have to be a Jew anymore. Because for Jewish people, that's, there's something very important to them about their story of faith. So Paul's looking at it saying, okay, I'm going to enter into your situation and I'm going to show you the truth of Jesus. To those outside the law, same thing on the other side. Let's say Paul is walking out his Jewish faith, which honestly many early Christians continued to walk in uh, their Jewish story. They would go to synagogue on the Sabbath. They would spend time uh, ministering to each other through the festivals and the feasts. They walked down that path many, many times. So if Paul's going into the Gentiles and he's trying to minister them, and he's saying, first you need to become Jewish, and then you need to follow Jesus, which some Christians were saying that. Imagine going into a city filled mostly with Gentiles and saying, all right, everybody, I'd like to tell you the good news, but first, circumcision. <laughs> You're not going to get a lot of people raising their hands. It just isn't going to sound appealing and creates an unnecessary roadblock to the gospel, and so Paul's saying, I'm not in this to put roadblocks in the way of people experiencing Jesus. So Christ's freedom has opened the door for me to go into these different environments and to bring God's grace and his kindness into those places. When he says, to the weak I became weak, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but maybe you weren't with us. This idea of being weak is not physically frail or even emotionally frail. It's not even dealing with a weak morality like somebody that's very prone to sinful behavior. We talked about it specifically being somebody whose faith is very tender. We use the parable of the soils that Jesus teaches in Matthew 13. Some of the seed fell on the well-worn path, the hard heart, and the enemy comes and plucks that seed away. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil, and, and the roots couldn't take. They couldn't go deep, and so when the sun came, it scorched it. 
And because there was no root, that faith just lasted a very short time, a month, a year, three years. We've seen people who very quickly have gotten excited about Jesus, but it just doesn't last very long, and it's, it doesn't stand the test of any kind of time. And that third soil was the seed that takes, but then along with the, uh, the fruitfulness, you see the weeds growing. And Jesus said, these are the cares of life. I love Jesus, but I really love my kids, and my job is to take care of them. I love Jesus, but I've really got this career that I've got to get on track. I love Jesus, but my mom is really sick and I can't really focus on that right now. I've got to take care of her. And, and these things that are, that are genuine things in life have the ability to suppress the gospel taking root in our life. And Paul viewed these circumstances through a heart of compassion. To the weak, I became weak. I'm not coming in and saying, hey, listen, you need to understand how free you are and how you can operate. I don't know if any of you have ever struggled with anxiety before, but it can be a a huge challenge uh, to be somebody that struggles with anxiety in the church because there are many passages of Scripture that, uh, if used or abused the wrong way, can really cause somebody with anxiety to fall into despair. So you struggle with sort of internal anxiety, and somebody comes to you and says, Jesus tells you not to worry, so get over it. And you find yourself just like, I don't want this but you, you dig yourself into a deeper hole or that, that anxiety grows because somebody is telling you that Jesus has expectations of you getting out of that very quickly. And Paul's looking at this and he's saying, I didn't come in just to bulldoze people and just to, just to actually smother them with this message. I came in to lift up, to build up those that are weak, whose faith is tender, who might struggle to let the gospel take root. I want to minister well and effectively. I want to take care of the people that God has entrusted to me. Then he says this. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. This basic concept, what Paul's talking about here, is called contextualization. And it's actually become a a huge deal over the last couple hundred years of mission work. Uh, You have guys like Hudson Taylor that, that moved to China and started living among the Chinese population and doing mission work And from that to Africa, to the Middle East, to to different places around the world, missionaries have started going into foreign lands. And instead of being somebody who is uh, white or English or American and insisting upon people first learning English and then they can learn the gospel or first learning how to dress appropriately and then they can hear the gospel, instead of going into those places and insisting on our way, This idea of contextualization has taken over mission work to where people are going in and learning customs, learning languages, learning how to to walk into a culture, an unknown culture, and not be immediately putting obstacles in the way of Jesus and understanding that I need to live in a way that I'm not going to prevent somebody from hearing the name of Jesus. And what's been wild is over the last probably 40 or 50 years, that that missiology, that understanding of how to go into a foreign people group has started to apply to our neighbors and our friends. That we're not just going to go into the lives of people that, that we don't understand and expect them to think like us and speak like us and act like us. Uh, there may be some of you in this room that, that don't know Jesus or don't have a story in the church. So the things that I'm about to share, uh, this might be your experience. I don't know if you've invited somebody to church 
and then everything that happens on that given Sunday morning just causes you to cringe a little bit because the person that you invited is not going to understand the things that are going on in that situation. I think one of the biggest culprits is when we, uh, when we take the body of Jesus and we dip it in the blood of Jesus and then we eat it. <laughs> Guys, that's really weird for somebody that doesn't know Jesus. And I I don't say that to disparage communion. I love what this signifies. But the reality is, when we just invite people into a room and we go out and we say, everybody come and be a part of our church, and Erica stands up here and starts singing, great is thy faithfulness, and that person's never said the word half in their life, and everybody in the room is lifting their hands and saying half, it can be kind of an intimidating situation. Or when a guy stands up in front and starts talking at you for 45 minutes, unless you're way into Tony Robbins, there's no real thing outside in the world that exists like this. These are weird things. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, welcome to our weird. Uh, We're really glad you're here. But one of the reasons that I bring all of that up is, is that Paul's heart was not that the church would just go out and grab everybody and bring them in and hope that everybody can learn how to speak our language, to dress the way that we dress, to look the way that we look, to think the way that we think. And if you can adjust to us, then you've you've got an in in the kingdom of God. His attitude was completely the opposite of that. That this is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That the the goal of us gathering is ultimately that we would scatter the saints of Jesus out into the world to carry the life of God and to show it to people in your context. With your understanding of the people that you're ministering to, equipped and ready to carry into different professions, different communities, different places locally and around the world, different people groups, You are being equipped to carry the name of Jesus out into the world. And while we love, and if honestly, if you don't know Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm not even that bummed if somebody invites a friend to come here. I just, I see what Paul's saying, that if we're going to help people find their way back to God, a huge part of that is us learning how to take that, that good news of Jesus, that gospel, out into the world where people are, in the language that they speak, the customs that they understand, and not put unnecessary roadblocks in the way of them experiencing Jesus. Because people could come here on any given Sunday and get super weirded out by this and say, I tried that church thing, I tried that Jesus thing, and I don't think it's for me. But when you walk this out in life with them, and you carry Jesus, showing the life that's been changed, the way that you've been completely transformed by the power of the gospel and just live a faithful life out in the world, you've got a great opportunity to show people the goodness of Jesus, to experience his grace and his peace and his kindness. So Paul kind of finishes that section with that phrase, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And I think I just want to, I want to pause for a moment At some point, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've got to come face to face with this passage and ask the question, is that why I do what I do? Do I do my life for the sake of the gospel? 
Or do I have a different motive for why I do what I do? Now, I don't know if you separate Paul out, like, well, he's an apostle, he's Paul, he's a missionary, he does his stuff the way that he does, but in chapter 11, verse 1, which feels like a mile away, but is one thought connected to this, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It is Paul's full expectation that he is training and equipping this Corinthian church to think like he thinks and to live like he lives. This is the way of a follower of Jesus, to do it all for the sake of the gospel. That doesn't mean that everybody is going to become a vocational minister, an evangelist, or an apostle, or a prophet, or a pastor, or a teacher, that there's some work that needs to, to happen in your life to validate you doing it all for the sake of the gospel. That was never Paul's call. But he does invite all people to be ministers of the gospel because that is growing in maturity in Christ, is that we understand our purpose, our reason for being here. The only reason that we have been left on this earth is to carry the name of Jesus out into a dark and broken and hurting world so that they can experience his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his peace, and his mercy and experience salvation through Jesus Christ. That is why you are here. To live is Christ. That's why you are here. This is our story. My, my challenge, my encouragement, even as I'm saying these things, is that you just, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you start letting these things wash over your mind. What am I doing here? As a cop, what am I doing here? As a teacher, what am I doing here? As a lawyer, what am I doing here? As a mom, what am I doing here? As a single person, what am I doing here? As a college student dreaming about the future, what am I doing here? one of the things that needs to filter through our lens is are we doing it all for the sake of the gospel? Now Paul writes this. He continues on. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul uses a sports metaphor. Right? They're biblical. So he's, he's inviting us to understand something. He wants to help us understand this reality, and he's talking to Corinth. They would have had a framework for sports. The Olympics were a huge deal, mostly track and field, wrestling and boxing. That was kind of the sporting world of the first century in Greco-Roman times. And Paul is inviting them to understand when you see an athlete, you understand how they train and prepare. All right, we're not talking about the turkey trot 5K where everybody just goes out to have a good time. In this time, everybody that was an athlete was competing to win. You wouldn't compete unless you were trying to win. And Paul's trying to help them understand a reality as followers of Jesus. And it's, it's a metaphor, so it does have limits. But Paul's saying this, if you're going to enter a race, you don't enter a race to lose. You enter a race to win. 
And it changes your mentality. It changes how you train and how you prepare. We're not just running aimlessly. We're not just boxing the air. We're actually giving ourselves a sense of focus. There is a target in our lives that we are trying to accomplish. There's a, a set finish line for every follower of Jesus, and we are all running towards that same finish line. Now, we have different stories. We have different gifting. We have different personalities. We're all coming from different places and we contribute different things, but we're all running towards the same finish line. Not one of us doesn't share the same purpose here in this life to help carry the name of Jesus out into a dark and broken world. Every one of us carries that exact same purpose. But so often we just kind of go through life with our eyes low, seeing what is immediately in front of us. Paul's trying to lift the eyes of the Corinthian church to say, look, we have something that we're running towards. There's a reason that you're here. And if you're not living your life for that purpose, if you are here for your own benefit, just make sure you know that is not maturity in Christ. There is a long way to go. The Corinthians had gotten pretty excited about their maturity. They felt like they had a ton of knowledge. Oh, we know that those idols are empty. And they felt really good about their knowledge. And Paul says, look, unless that knowledge gets put to work in love and you start to build up the people around you, you have not found this idea of maturity in Christ. So keep plugging away. Keep moving. Guys, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about the intentionality, and this is kind of where we'll close, that Paul speaks of here. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. I don't know if you are a goal setter in life, I don't know if there are things that you like pinpoint and say, okay, this is what I'd like to see happen. In five years, I want to be uh, trained and equipped in my understanding of the scriptures. I want to get my certification in foster care, and I'd love to be open to having our first child in place. Or maybe you say, okay, in, in five years, I'd like to be um, growing in my ability to communicate the gospel, and I want to be exercising that in the lives of the people that God's entrusted to me. I want to be speaking the gospel out. All right, over the next five years, I'd like to grow in my understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want to be praying for people and ministering to them and expecting God to do what he promised he would do. I want to be ministering to people in the, in the streets. I want to be ministering to people in my neighborhood. I want to be ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. Are there goals that we set in our spiritual lives? It might feel kind of strange. It might feel counterintuitive, but that's exactly what Paul is saying. An athlete has self-control trying to train and prepare for what they are trying to accomplish. He's applying that to the life of every follower of Jesus. Are we disciplining ourselves so that we can achieve the outcomes that God has laid before us? Are you doing the work to ultimately get to the place where God is taking you? 
A few years back, Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love, and he uh, quoted another guy in there. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Yes, a guy named Tim Kizier. Uh, Francis quoted him, and he said this, Our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. At some point, every single one of us needs, needs to ask the question, like, what am I doing? Is my life all for the sake of the gospel? Or am I running off in directions that are unproductive for the sake of the kingdom of God? Doesn't mean that everybody's going into professional ministry. I know I've said that already, but, but in your work, in your family, in your relationships, are you running towards Jesus saying, I know my purpose, I know why I'm here, to live as Christ. And that is the filter, that's the lens, that's what I, I see my life through, to live is Christ to accomplish his purpose, to carry his name, to show this world the goodness of God, am I here for that? Because that sentence, just imagine getting to the end of your life and having succeeded at a bunch of stuff that does not matter to God. He's given us a vision for what he is set us here to do. So in the context of our lives, there's a stewardship to say, Lord, what is it that you've asked me to do? In this life, with my gifts, with my personality, with my context, how do I carry your name and do the work that you've called me to? Do the work that you've called all of us to in my context. There's not one of us, there's not one of us that's exempt from that. I will say this, I've, I've carried a bit of a, a burden today for those of you that feel like, um, or not feel like, that's, that sounds uh, like it's a bad thing, who are experiencing extenuating circumstances in life. Like maybe you have built margin into your life to live the mission of Jesus and your life has just come crashing in on you in varying degrees. Now we've experienced that a little bit ourselves over the last few years, trying to, trying to build margin into our lives and just seeing that margin taken up and, and even feeling guilty, like we're not doing enough to carry the name of Jesus out into a dark and broken world. I've just I felt a burden to make sure that you understand and hear this as clearly as possible. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A message like this can create a lot of tension. The guilt on one side of saying I'm not doing enough and the apathy on the other side of saying I'm, I'm not interested in doing what he's saying to do. Many of the words that I've said have tried to push you out of any kind of apathy and towards the pursuit of Jesus, all for the sake of the gospel, but I want to make sure that I'm bringing in just the, the grace and the no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is such grace for the journey, and those extenuating circumstances are often what God has put in your life 
to help you understand how to be faithful now with what he's entrusted to you or what he's put in your life. There is a faithfulness that you can walk in today no matter what your circumstances are. But it may be handling the circumstances that have been thrust upon you faithfully. In Jesus, carrying his name into the broken relationships that exist in your life, even the recovering from sinful brokenness that you've brought into your own life, you can now walk faithfully with Jesus today in that as a part of this purpose, this mission of bringing the light of Jesus into a broken world. So I I don't want you to walk out of here feeling like all those things that Matt said, I dream about doing those things, but Jesus can't use me because I'm a broken and wicked person. That's not the nature of the gospel. In Jesus, I want you to hear this. Regardless of where you are, he has taken people far more broken than you and shown them the beauty and the power of the gospel. And he will continue to take people far more broken than you and show them the beauty and the power of the gospel. And ultimately, what we all get to do is say, okay, each of us are ultimately broken. And Jesus has the power to take us from wherever we are and whatever we are doing and to walk in faithfulness today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. He is building in you a story of faithfulness. And if you feel like you've disqualified yourself, you need to know that the gospel says that you have not that he's the one that qualifies you for work in his, in his gospel. So today, today your story can walk in Jesus and can press forward without his condemnation, though he brings through conviction a desire to repent of our sinfulness and our brokenness, he does not condemn us and say you are unusable. He qualifies us to work in his, in his ministry. So I wanted to make sure that I brought that up because I know that I get a little bit heavy-handed with these messages sometimes, and I apologize if you felt crushing guilt. Sometimes that happens. But the hope of these things is to move us into this place of saying, Jesus, I am yours. So what does today look like? Jesus, I am yours. What does two years from now look like? Jesus, I am yours. How can I walk faithfully towards this goal of helping people find their way back to you? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for giving us your grace. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to rejoice in you. Lord, I do dream of a a church that is diligently and faithfully aware of the calling on each of our lives to hold this treasure that you've entrusted to us and to carry it out into this world. To to take your life and let other people experience it. To take your power and let other people be ministered to by it. To carry your name and let this world know and experience your grace and your goodness. 
Lord, would you help us to walk faithfully and diligently with self-control and intentionality towards this objective that you have laid before us that there might be people that say yes to walking with you, Jesus, because we lived your life out in this world. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for inviting us into your story. It's in your name we pray, amen.